Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Delighted to have as my guest Bessel van der Kolk. Bessel is the author of a new book called The Body Keeps the Score, and it is quickly becoming one of the definitive books on psychological trauma. Bessel is the founder and director of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts, and a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. He's also the director of the National Complex Trauma Treatment Network. ideas and concepts on trauma and how it affects the body. We used to think of psychological trauma as being a psychological and emotional issue. What Bessel shows in this book is that it affects the body at the most fundamental levels, at the levels of our hormones, at the levels of our neurotransmitters, and by implication at the levels of our genes. So this book, again, has rapidly become a standard book, standard textbook, in this field. Bessel, it is a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, how did you first stumble on this idea that there's this link between body and mind, between psychology and physiology, between experience of trauma, traumatic events, and having an effect deep inside the body? Well, it's sort of always been obvious, you know, uh, when Abram Gardner made his observation about first world war soldiers to prepare America to go into the second world war. He warned people that this trauma issue, the combat neurosis, was a physio-neurosis that the body lifted out. So people have really always known this. And the reason why my book called The Body Keeps Score is because one of my patients happens to tell me the body keeps score. But that was just a sentence that confirmed what we've always known. I mean, trauma gets expressed and it changes stress hormones and strengthens immune function. People become uptight. People slouch. When you look at the old videotapes of uh, shell shock soldiers in, in, video, in uh, World War One, you see them making strange body movements. The women who have been raped become extremely uptight and frightened when there's any sort of sexual thing going on. Yeah, the body keeps the score. just the way it is. And you also describe in the book some of your early experiences when you first began working with traumatized Vietnam veterans. And I'd like you just to tell us a couple of those stories of people you worked with yeah. and how you saw the impact on their bodies, trauma, as you were working with them as a young psychiatrist. Well, what struck me most as a young psychiatrist working with Vietnam veterans is that we were beginning to define trauma at that point as an event that happens, something bad. And what became very key, obviously, from the very beginning, is that trauma is almost always an interpersonal phenomenon. That people get traumatized because they see their best friend getting blown up, or because they see their kid being driven killed by a drunk driver, or they get raped by somebody who they trusted, or they get abused by somebody who they admired. And so, 
trauma is much more interpersonal than, oh, some shit happens to you and then you feel bad for the rest of your life. So almost always has a very profound interpersonal quality. And that gets into a notion that actually didn't come from the beginning, but slowly emerged, uh, not only from my mind, but also from attachment researchers such as Paul Winter, Farson, and Beatrice Bibby, namely that we depend on each other to make each other feel safe. So when you're a kid and you cry, somebody is supposed to respond to you with a face and a voice that matches your face and voice, and it can set your face and your voice into feeling safe. As a kid, you're very dependent on an interpersonal interaction to restore a sense of safety. If at that point a person keeps beating you, even if you're looking for your life, or if at that point people ignore your distress, then your body doesn't calm itself down. And then you need to learn skills to do something to get that fear out of your body. And that becomes a very big part of most psychiatric illnesses of people who have very disturbed relationship to their bodies and who do things to their bodies that are marked by remarkable lack of self-love and self-care, like mutilating yourself, stuffing yourself with food, smoking, taking drugs, starving yourself, and do other things that are fundamentally harmful to yourself. Well, of course, when you're a baby, you have no other option, and you do expect to be cared for by others. And right. if that expectation is violated, then that has profound consequences. You know, therefore, one of the studies that's coming to my mind is a study done by a uh, psychologist called Barbara Stone in Rwanda. She worked in, a, in an orphanage with two colleagues, and they measured the results for PTSD in those, those traumatized people who are now mostly in their early 20s, 20 years after the, the, the massacre of Rwanda. And the results for the PTSD schools, they were using, they were using tapping on, on the, the, the orphanages, and the results weren't bad. They got about an 80% reduction in PTSD symptoms, significant effects. But in another study done by Caroline Sakai, who's a psychiatrist in Hawaii, she and her team went to Rwanda, worked at a totally separate orphanage to, to independent study, and they got a 90% reduction in PTSD symptoms. And so I, I, I was so, so struck by the differences in these, these studies. So I, I, I talked to the researchers, the investigators, I said, what was the difference? And it turned out that with the study where the, they got this 18% reduction using tapping, they, the team went in there, they worked with the, the, the kids, they gave them, I think, several, several sessions over the course of three days, then they left, and then, and then they, they, they follow up, they, the kids did a little bit better. The group where they got a 90% improvement, what, what happened is they, the, the tapping became part of the culture of the orphanage, so kids would wake up screaming, nightmare, the other kids would rush over and tap on them, and so it, the, this became, this behavior became engraved, this physiological calming behavior, became ingrained in the actual social structure of the orphanage. And so a year later, when the researchers tested them, there was this massive drop in PTSD symptoms. But it, it was really clear, talking to the investigators, that that, that, that so woven with that care, woven into the social fabric of the orphanage, that's what made the difference. So that, that's compelling. Um, this is a compelling example of what you're saying. Social care, being cared for by others, is hugely important in recovery. My only caveat to what you're saying is that this study was done in Rwanda because people keep sort of focusing on trauma as being something that's out there, far away, when in fact we have two and a half million children in America whose parents are in jail, and we have over two people, two million people in jail right in the U.S., the largest jail population anywhere in the world, who almost also, all of whom are traumatized. 
our inner city kids are traumatized. You don't need to go to Rwanda to do any of this stuff. And I think we keep sort of diverting yourself from the horrendous issues that are happening right here by focusing on people who look different from ourselves. You talk a lot about the ACE study, and that's a crucial study done in the early 90s, sorry, the early 90s, that, that showed this and showed just how widespread adverse experiences were. Just talk a little bit about those adverse childhood experiences and about how, how they set us up for a lifetime of suffering later on. Well, you know, you don't need to do go to Vince Letty. You know, I, I see quite a few school teachers here in Boston, which is not one of the more violent cities in America. Uh, when they show me their class pictures, they tell me what's gone on with the kids in their class. And there's almost not a single kid who doesn't have a parent who was a drug addict, a parent who was in jail, a parent who was murdered, uh, beaten up, etc., etc. Uh, so it's happening, it's ubiquitous, and it's even ubiquitous among white people who are not so badly off. And so uh, about a third of all partners engaged in some sort of domestic violence, a quarter of all kids have traumatizing sexual experiences, stuff like that. And again, the body keeps the score, so the way that we, that, that actually was one of Fanatti's real important contributions, is that the, the APA defined it as a mental phenomenon where you have flashbacks and nightmares and you keep thinking about it, the event. But that's not at all how it really gets played out primarily. It gets played out in a body that keeps being hyper-aroused, that keeps feeling in danger, that keeps secreting stress hormones um, as if you're about to die. And all these things are uh, lived out right now with almost no conscious reference to the past. And so when uh, somebody blows up at their partner for a minor offense, they don't say, oh boy, I really want to kill you because this reminds me of my mother beating me up when I was three years old. Even though that may be the original incentive to that happening, that's not what's being experienced. Trauma is experienced right now and doesn't really belong to the past. Yeah, and that's a crucial distinction. I know that Bob Scare talks about the dissociative capsule and how when we dissociate and wrap that adverse experience in perspective capsule and bury it, then all of the sensory information about the current experience is encapsulated there in real time, in present time. You mean, you mean Sigmund Freud said it in 1893? Mm, wow. People have been observing this for a long time. He says it's like a splinter in the mind. Yeah. yeah.
cannot fit into one molecule. Yeah, our bodies are very, very complex, and uh, the whole field of genetics is full of studies that show links between one gene and some kind of effect. But then, when that gene is changed or silenced or, or enhanced or expressed, the, uh, the, there are often many, many cascade of effects that, that occur. So, the right. body is very complex. Yeah, they're very, very complex organisms. You know, what happens is the funding follows the latest technology. So, the latest technology is genes. So, right now, people the genes and finding the genes for mental phenomenon and surprise of surprise, they don't find it. And they find minor alterations in gene expression that if they are in the context of bad social environments, seem to be related to certain outcomes. But, for example, uh, the most clearly established gene having to do with our population is the short serotonin transportal allele. And if you have that particular gene, and you get based in adverse circumstances, you're likely to become more aggressive and assaulted and end up killing people and go to jail. If you have that gene and you get raised in circumstances where people care for you and you have good opportunities, you use the same gene in order to become a more productive member of society who is more generous to other people. So, same gene, different experiences, different outcomes. Yeah, so experience shapes genes and shapes these circuits in. Do you think maybe this is why some people become more resilient when faced with trauma? I think that thing gets a little overrated. You know, I have patients in my practice who have... I've had five patients in my practice who have won MacArthur Prizes and who are very... I wouldn't call them resilient. I would call them very hurt, hurt people who happen to be very creative. And so trauma forces people oftentimes to come up with original um, solutions. The solutions may be drug addiction or it may be becoming a great scientist who spent day and night in the laboratory. But that doesn't mean that you're resilient. It still you know, makes you hurt like crazy and it still leaves a trace somewhere. Um, so some of this focus on how are these people amazingly resilient uh, is a bit of, yes, but on the other hand, they also cut themselves and also they cannot have sex and also they uh, blow up at their kids, even though on the surface they may look great. Be careful. You know, many scientists people, and I, I wonder about it a lot, and I think some of the greatest geniuses in our society happen to be traumatized people who were forced to find very new solutions for all problems because of their trauma. And so I think much of the special things that happen in our society oftentimes are instigated by traumatized people who see new realities. But in the so they're just very, they have very good perfect skills. They're very creative. They haven't actually become more resilient. They are not happier as a result. Other people may be happier as a result, but that doesn't mean that they <laughs> Their creativity and their accomplishments are making other people happier, but they aren't getting happier themselves. No. Interesting. So what are the So resilient meaning, what, what health is, is to be fully alive and engaged in the present. And that's, that's what health is, that's what resilience is. And the nature of trauma is that you are not fully alive and feeling you, that it's good to be in the present. That is a fascinating definition, and you talk about this a lot in the book, about how it's that divorce from the present that is the characteristic of traumatized people, and that, that the, the kinds of body-based therapies that you advocate bring them back into the present and make it safe for them to inhabit the present. Yeah. We had to define PTSD for 
political reasons, because we need to convince the VA that the troubles of these guys were due to the war and not to their mothers, um, that this is related to a memory of something that happened some time ago. Uh, but the reality, and the first person ever who wrote about trauma was a Frenchman by the name of Pierre Genet, back in 1889, the year that the Eiffel Tower was built. He said, the traumatism is a disease of identification, it's an illness of not feeling alive right now. And I think he nailed it. Uh, the issue of trauma is not telling the trauma story over and over again what happened back then, but to tell the story of being alive right now, and how can you be alive right now, and not get hijacked by the past over and over again. That metaphor of hijacking is interesting. Um, Ledoux, Joseph Ledoux, calls it the hostile takeover of consciousness by emotion. And I've used that phrase of his in several of my scientific papers. It's such a provocative phrase that literally are, are, are the, the, the movie screen, the, the monitor of our consciousness is completely dominated by that emotion and we're no longer awake and alive to the people right here. Let's talk about what the research tells us about this. You mentioned people like Pierre Janet and Cardner and how they were able to make these observations in the 1890s and, and after World War One that, that trauma was a disease of the body. And now, of course, we have experimental tools to create hypotheses and to start to do research into this. So give us a recap of what some of that research tells us. Well, yeah, uh, technology shapes what we know. And so, as luck would have it, we were able to take pictures of people's brains. Uh, and I happened to be part of the team that took the first pictures of our brain scans of traumatized people. And our results were really quite dramatic. Uh, what we found is that when people went into the trauma, their rational brain basically shuts down. Their language center of their brain shuts down. And so the therapists usually say, oh, let's just talk about what's happened. And that's what we discovered in our brain scans is that traumatized people are literally struck with what Shakespeare called a speechless terror, or they become dumbfounded, and the brain becomes dumbfounded. And the activation in the brain is in your survival brain, so you become like an animal who just tries to survive by shutting down or fighting, and this has very little to do with reason. So it's been very surprising to me that treatments such as cognitive behavioral treatments have become so prominent, because trauma is exactly about a loss of cognition. And the treatment of trauma is to work with brain so you, you actually become a person who learns to observe oneself again and actually knows oneself. But you don't start off with knowing yourself because part of it gets very much destroyed by or very much affected by trauma. So traumatized people are irrational and you cannot talk reason into them. And I think anybody who thinks you can talk reason to people, Kobe has never been married or anything because people in this state of higher rivalry you can actually talk sense into people like where have you been like <laughs> so bizarre and indeed there's nothing in neuroscience that would would confirm that that's indeed possible that's why the, the big issues we have learned is that the rational brain goes offline the emotional brain the uh, and start on the show to the precepts of the time that you were that's all this trauma happens so you start behaving like a three-year-old frightened kid or a 12-year-old frightened kid or a 22-year-old frightened veteran and so your brain goes automatically goes there without very much conscious control uh, that's what we have learned about neuroscience and so how do people regain control over that um, again neuroscience gave some important 
clues, and that is really there is only one part of the brain that gives you, or actually two, two parts of the brain that allow you to become a master of yourself. One is in the back of your brain, and that is the part of your brain that helps you to breathe and to feel your body. Um, and of course, that is not something that is part of our Western tradition, but when you go to India or China or Africa, that's what people, how people treat traumatic stress. They treat it by breathing and moving and touching, which are dimensions of healing that are only practiced in California and in uh, enlightened communities, but that certainly are not mainstream medical traditions. But it's interesting that uh, about 26 million people in the U.S. practice yoga, and uh, as you get to know yoga better, you start suspecting that yoga was developed in order to help with trauma. So I became interested in that question and went to NIMH, National Institute of Health, and begged them for money to study that question. And indeed, our study proved that people who are traumatized who do yoga benefit more from doing yoga than any medication anybody has ever studied. So coming home into your body uh, it turns out to be a very important, powerful opponent of regaining self-leadership, as we like to call it, and owning yourself. So our uh, yoga study was very important. Um, the other thing, of course, is the issue of EMDR, which is relevant for you because this comparative study still needs to be done, whether EMDR and tapping are uh, have similar results. I know quite a few people who started off doing EMDR and then moved into tapping who claimed that tapping may be just as effective as EMDR. No studies have been done to show that yet. Uh, I happen to have done the biggest EMDR study, and indeed EMDR is a very effective treatment for traumatic memories. Astoundingly so. That doesn't mean that EMDR is always the treatment of choice. And it's very conceivable that other things that are just as strange as EMDR, which is a strange method because you will you fall to people's faces, which is almost as strange as tapping yourself with people's body. Western rational two-eyed people, you know, like, we don't do crazy stuff like that, do we? Um, and then it turns out that these things happen to be very helpful. And then the question becomes, so can we prove how helpful it is? For whom? For whom it doesn't work? And because this, this tendency in our society, uh, human beings probably, that when we discover something that works, we get a little fanatical about it. And we say, oh, it works for everybody. Say, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, in our EMDR study, the adults have been traumatized as adults, did extremely well. 80% of them got cured, but 20% of them didn't. And our people with childhood trauma, uh, only about 30% got cured, and 70% still had a lot of trouble. And so the question is, what are the limitations of any of these methods? And that's why we are not religious people, we are scientists. So we try to really figure out the what, how, when, how not. Um, for me, one of, the, one of the other very exciting things that really is new is that, you know, we know how many changes there are in the brain and all these changes, the temporal lobe changes and the frontal lobe changes and the insular changes, the way you experience your body changes, the way you filter out the in and out information changes. And I think those are all very important things because if you don't really understand what the underlying issues are, you keep sort of staying with surface phenomena that don't change anything. So... So as we learned what the different brain functions are that are being uh, undermined by trauma, at the same time, neurofeedback started to come up. And we learned to actually change people's brains by having people play computer games with their own brain waves. 
meditating for a week, that it might also come up with results like that. But yes, and finding research, research. Yeah. Yeah, no, just big claims. Yeah, yeah and that, uh, that question, perhaps we'll take this up in the next segment. Um, the question that raised is, why does it not help some people? And you mentioned how in your EMDR study, that's crucial, that large study, that 80% were cured, and actually that's exactly the same proportion we found in several randomized controlled trials with EMP veterans, that long-term, mm-hmm. about 80, 80, 85% of them were better. 80% of veterans were cured, meaning they dropped below threshold for measurable, diagnosable clinical PTSD, but 20% were not. I was really struck by that number, Bethel, because we've done now several randomized controlled trials of EMP tapping for PTSD, and that portion is almost identical. In the one that where I was the lead investigator, 84% of them were below that clinical threshold after treatment. Three and six months later, 80% of them were below that, that mm. clinical threshold. So almost identical results. And in fact, a hospital in Britain's National Health Service did a trial comparing EMDR to EFT for PTSD among their hospital patients. And they found that their hospital patients dropped below the clinical threshold with both EMDR and EFT in an average of four sessions. So very, very brief treatment time frames, long-term success with both methods. But I am really obsessed with figuring out why that 20% or so of people, those people from PTSD don't respond. And I look at their, their data. I can't see anything obviously different about them, but I'm so puzzled as to why, if these methods work so well for most people with PTSD, why they don't work for that 20%. Do you have any about that? Oh, yeah. The answers are probably quite clear, and that is, is that we're looking at, when we talk about trauma, we talk about the event that happens, but the event is grafted on a pre-existing mind and brain, and so what's just beginning to emerge right now, and that's still, still very much a work in progress, is that people like my friend Marty Teicher at Harvard are beginning to map out the brain circuits that get damaged at various stages of development by various forms of trauma. And that many people who are veterans or many people who get PTSD have some sort of pre-existing issues, uh, um, not just them. For example, I'm quite personally, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I would have developed PTSD if I had gone to Vietnam, not only because of what I would have seen and done there, but because of certain things that happened to me as a kid, which now are sort of under the surface and are things that I can dealt with might as well become activated by a later trauma. And these earlier minor deficits that I've been living with and dealing with in my own life might have been blown up by later life trauma. And so uh, it's we all are complex creatures whose brains and minds have been formed over a long period of time. And earlier traumatic incidents have shaped our brain at this particular point. You, as long as nothing all that bad happens to you, you get away with it, you function, you do okay. But then when the big trauma hits, all these earlier circuits that weren't working all that well may well become full-blown deficits and start really interfering with things. Even since my book came out a year ago, quite a lot of new information has come out uh, about the degree to which earlier life traumas really do shape and predict later responses. Mm. So those functions, those neurological functions, those brain patterns are being established early in life, and then when the person is faced with a serious adult trauma, that 
and trigger PTSD? No, it's not. See, it's not PTSD. PTSD is just a list of symptoms made up by a committee for the American Psychiatric Association. That's very important. These diagnoses are not like medical diagnosis. That PTSD is just something we call something. But it, no, it's not pancreatic cancer. It's not like rhabdomyosarcoma sarcoma of your femur. PTSD is just a list of symptoms that we use for insurance purposes. So our, our brain patterns, our mind patterns are very complex patterns. We were very complex creatures. And all these patterns get shaped by experience. But if you get molested, screamed at, uh, abused, neglected as a kid, you develop certain brain structures that may make life in some ways a little bit more different or uh, problematic than it does for other people. But you're able to compensate for it and you do okay. But then if the big trauma hits, these earlier um, defective circuits may then really begin to wreak havoc with your capacity to pay attention, to focus, to stay alive, to go to work, and to be kind to other people. Yes, and one of the complexities you illustrate in your book with those brain scans is how people respond differently, people's brains respond differently, and you give the example of the scans you did of Stan and his wife who are in a 54-car pileup on, right. on the highway, and they, their brain showed totally different responses to that traumatic right. experience. Right, yeah. Right, so because you know, our psychiatric diagnoses are just terrible diagnoses because they, they really don't take anything into account what we really know about brain and mind development. So they're just antivirus of some past optimistic way of thinking in the 1980s. But the sooner we get rid of that, the better it is. Um, what we now know, and I may just try to move in that direction, is to, we have certain ways of dealing with reality that get changed by circumstances. And so the issue right, that we're facing right now is the issue of neuroplasticity. Huh? How can you change the brain? How can you change the potential systems? How can you help people to be fully focused, alive, present, uh, attentive to their, their own and other people's needs? And that issue of neuroplasticity is a crucial one in PTSD because, like in one large-scale study of uh, World Trade Center first responders, they found that half of all the cases of PTSD were delayed onset PTSD. In other words, they showed up with PTSD. They did not show up with positive PTSD after the disaster, but then a year, two years, five years later, they did. Of half those cases were of that delayed onset type, and it uh, is attributable partly to that re-experiencing and to the reinforcement of those neural circuits. If that person is remembering that over and over again, if they're having flashbacks, then those neural circuits are becoming larger and more depth at, at signaling. And so that re- that, that's what I call the dark side of neuroplasticity, is that it not only helps us if we're learning a new skill, Yeah. 
trying. Making uh, those differences, as long as you can do something, as long as you can make a difference, as long as you can do something that undoes some of the damage, your brain develops a new adaptation. If you're met by silence, ignorance, and further uh, helplessness, then these circuits really start taking hold of you. Fascinating. You mentioned, Bessel, that many people have had these somatic experiences, and so many of us are carrying those inner scars, which are then becoming physiological scars as well, as you show the beauty in this book. So I'd love you to share some of the treatments you found, the methods you found, mm-hmm. that help people get over these traumatic experiences, and also any commonalities you feel are there among the treatments. Well, uh, you know, our culture basically doesn't teach us that we have inbuilt self-regulatory systems, uh, that there's ways in which we can calm ourselves down and make ourselves feel safe. And so in order to overcome trauma, you first of all need to activate your self-regulatory system. And for most of us, that involves some sort of um, body work that involves breathing, movements, being in sync with other people, um, and feeling safe to be touched. And so the, the foundation of our being is to be part of humanity and to be touched and to move together and to breathe. And uh, a fair, fair amount of my work in the book is on just emphasizing learning how to breathe again, learning how to be touched again, and learning how to be in sync with people. Um, you know, the way that people survive, traditionally have survived terrible situations, is by singing together, by moving together. Uh, the army knows all that stuff very well, and soldiers who go off to war, the soldiers who have hard things to do, they move together, they march together, they sing together. Um, just last night I downloaded a lot of YouTubes about uh, rhythms and movements in the army because they are so very good at it. And we use none of these things in our school systems and our hospitals to help people to just get a sense of singing together. Um, so making noises in unison with other people. Uh, very elementary things that are not part of what people think when they think about psychology. Joining a chorus and singing the hallelujah chorus or singing songs together in church has always been enormously helpful for people. Um, martial arts moving your body in sync with other people. Uh, I worked in South Africa on the Truth Commission and asked Nelson Mandela at one point how he accounted for his having become this amazingly mindful person after having been a terrorist when he was a young guy. And he said, boxing. Boxing really taught me to have a mind and to anticipate other people and to anticipate my own responses and to know what happens deep inside of me and how to respond to other people's knows. Uh, boxing, martial arts, sets up the circuits of observation of yourself and other people that get destroyed by trauma. Um, one study I'd love to do is compare jiu-jitsu or capoeira with cognitive behavioral treatments for PTSD or tango dancing. Just being in sync with other people on a very deep physiological level forces your brain to calm itself down and to be attuned to your environment right now. And so again, uh, our yoga study is still a very elementary study, but it's done well, showed that yoga was more effective than any medication ever tried for PTSD. Um, so getting the, that body safe, that body in sync, that body to connect with other bodies is, is the foundation of our personhood. Uh, so that's 
foundation. Uh, and then the next level is you deal, need to deal with the trauma. And as long as you run away from what happens, and as long as you want to, don't want to know what happened to you, your conscious self may suppress what happened, but your body doesn't suppress it. Your body does keep the score and will act it out for you. And once you actually know what happens to you, and somebody out there is willing to listen to the details of what happened to you, and once you open yourself to listen to what happened to you and deal with your shame about that this happened and your feelings of inadequacy and um, horror about the role you played in this situation. Uh, that's very powerful. Uh, keeping secrets from ourselves and saying, oh, everything was fine, uh, perfectly happy childhood, oh, my relationship was a little violent, but it didn't really bother me. Uh, as long as you keep those secrets for yourself, you really don't allow yourself to know uh, what happened to you, uh, your body will play it out for you. So that's an important part. And then lastly is indeed that if your brain is stuck in a fear-fright um, circuit stage, then you have to rewire your brain. And you can probably rewire your brain by um, doing things that make your body feel effective and powerful and to do things like theater or um, martial arts or some sort of thing that gives your body a sense of strength and purpose and direction because trauma is about purposelessness and helplessness and having no direction. Um, so that, that, uh, and then neurofeedback, uh, very powerful to rewire your brain to actually to be able to pay attention and to not go into these dissociative states all the time. Uh, finally, and the big thing about trauma is a loss of imagination. You think that things will, it will always be helpful, helpless, that always terrible things will happen to you. The great thing about life is to have an imagination, to imagine new possibilities. And any treatment that can help the traumatized person to open up their imagination, to imagine new possibilities and to go after them, would be an effective treatment. Well, thank you so much for that overview of what does constitute effective treatment and the commonalities they all have. Thank you also so much for sharing your wisdom and your insight today. And again, the book is called Body Score. The author is Bessel van der Kolk. Bessel, thank you again for an enlightening 